episode 43 of War in the Book of Mormon, part 7.6, Success Through Unity, the Gadiat and Robber War, Consolidated Settlement Campaign. The events in this episode are covered in the book of 3rd Nephi in the Book of Mormon, chapters 3 and 4. I recommend reading the Book of Mormon account before listening to this episode so that the events as recorded by Mormon are fresh in your minds. It is also recommended to reread the account following the lessons learned to re-examine my and your own thoughts on the events. In the October 2001 General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the then President of the Church, Gordon B. Hinckley, said the following, quote, Our safety lies in the virtue of our lives. Our strength lies in our righteousness. Close quote. We will see this statement play out in the story that follows in this episode. The Consolidated Settlement Campaign, as I call it, took place from the 107th to the 118th years of the reign of the judges, or 16 to 27 AD, and it featured numerous battles and engagements and was the bloodiest exchange of arms in the pre-Christ Nephite era. The campaign fell at the apex of the Gadianton and Robber War and came at the height of influence and power of the robber kingdom discussed in episode 39 or part 7.2 of this podcast series. There were significant extremes in the series of events. In fact, one could easily see the poetry of extremes in Mormon's account. He wants us to see, in stark reality, the importance of unification, not simply coming together and cooperating, which is true of every military venture, but of complete unity of place, people, resources, and commitment. The Nephites quite literally put all their eggs in one basket in this event. Mormon was teaching the essential nature of complete commitment to the principle of unity. I earlier used word and verse counts in episode 20 or part 5.1 to communicate the importance of the first battle of Manti found in Alma chapters 43 and 44 to Mormon's efforts to teach us. A similar approach is useful here to further illustrate the importance of this conflict in Mormon's metaphorical narrative. Mormon invested 57 verses and about 2,760 words in recounting these events. This is the third most detailed military event in terms of recorded space invested. Only the first battle of Manti and the Amalekiahite War from Alma chapters 46 to 62 received more attention in the Book of Mormon than the events to be discussed in this episode. Unlike the First Battle of Manti, the Consolidated Settlement Campaign was an important military event in both the geopolitical sphere and the spiritual one. It was very important to Mormon that his readers learn from these events. There are many details in this account. As noted previously, those details matter. I can safely state that I do not understand the significance of all the details presented here. Therefore, some details will be mentioned with the intent of allowing others with greater insight and understanding to explain the significance of those items. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, 
opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Recap of the background events. If it has been a while since you listened to episode 39, then it may be worth going back and reviewing the events of the Gadianton Robber War. In brief, I will highlight the key events between the dual dissension war and the campaign that I will be addressing in this episode. Remember that the Nephites and Lamanites were at peace. All of the lands seized through violent attack were returned by the Lamanites. The dual dissension war was the last war between Lamanites and Nephites. Everything that followed were wars, battles, engagements, skirmishes, etc., between some form of robbers and the Nephite or Lamanite states. There were a lot of these acts of violence. The robbers were so prevalent that they infiltrated the Nephite state and set the conditions for a two-year civil war that was fought from the 72nd to the 74th years of the reign of the judges, or 20 to 18 BC. Somewhere around 12 BC, or the 80th year of the reign of the judges, the robbers established some sort of independent authority in the wilderness between the Nephite and Lamanite lands. This state, or kingdom, or whatever it was, was so capable that Nephite armies that went against it to battle lost on multiple occasions, as we are told in Helaman chapter 11, verses 28 to 31. The desultory fighting between Nephite and Lamanite states and the robbers lasted for decades. At about the 104th year of the reign of the judges, or 13 AD, I believe that Laconius was the governor of the land, and he led some successful and some unsuccessful campaigns against the robbers. I believe that these campaigns are what the robber leader Gideonhai will refer to in his epistle that we will read from in a few minutes. This is where we will begin this episode's story. Overview of the Campaign This story begins with a letter from the Gadianton robber leader to the governor of the land, threatening the invasion and destruction of the Nephite state. More on that detail later. The governor calls for all people to collect all of their food, seven years' worth, and gather together in a single location, though they really seem to have gathered in two locations. In that single location, they fortified their positions and armed and armored their fighters. The robbers came down and found that the land had been stripped bare of food and there were no people. So they gathered themselves into a single body and went to battle against the city of Zarahemla. The robbers and the consolidated Nephite and Lamanite forces clashed outside the city of Zarahemla, with the robbers being defeated and driven off and the robber leader killed. The Nephites and Lamanites returned to Zarahemla for more than a year before the robbers laid siege to the city. The robbers were insufficient to fully invest the city, and the consolidated settlement army attacked the robber siege lines in various places, achieving multiple successes. The robbers grew frustrated and decided to flee. The Nephite commander encircled the robbers, brought them to battle, and defeated them. The Nephites and Lamanites remained in the consolidated settlement for another two years prior to returning to their homes. That is the story in brief. The governor was Laconius. The chief captain was Gidgadoni. 
The initial robber leader was Gideonhai, and the final robber leader was Zemnariha. Geographical setting. There is one aspect of this battle that confuses me. The confusion is probably due to my lack of understanding of the general Nephite geography. As I understand it, Zarahemla was generally a little south of the center of Nephite lands, and Bountiful was north and a bit east. That means that the two cities were quite a ways apart, and it would have been difficult to maybe nearly impossible for the two cities to form a single consolidated settlement. Then we read this in 3 Nephi chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, quote, And it came to pass in the seventeenth year, in the latter end of the year, the proclamation of Laconius had gone forth throughout all the face of the land, and they had taken their horses, and their chariots, and their cattle, and all their flocks, and their herds, and their grain, and all their substance, and did march forth by thousands, and by tens of thousands, until they had all gone forth to the place which had been appointed, that they should gather themselves together to defend themselves against their enemies. And the land which was appointed was the land of Zarahemla, and the land which was between the land Zarahemla and the land Bountiful, yea, to the line which was between the land Bountiful and the land Desolation. Close quote. Do I misunderstand the physical relationships of the two cities? Maybe. Maybe the cities were connected by massive, long walls. I don't know. Because I don't know, I am going to focus on Zarahemla, as if the issues with Bountiful and its relationship to Zarahemla don't matter to the broader story, which they don't, by the way, and hope that a better informed person can help me to understand the geography later. Location As the Consolidated Settlement Campaign was a campaign consisting of a series of engagements and battles, it is difficult to state that the battles only happened in a single place. Most of the fighting and the largest occurrence of casualties were around the city of Zarahemla and on the path from Zarahemla to the wilderness. No mention is made of details of terrain. Though the perception is given of a large plain outside the city where the most significant single battle took place, as expressed in 3 Nephi 4, 8. Following the defeat of the robbers, the consolidated settlement, Nephite-Lamanite army, pursued the fleeing robbers toward the wilderness. This was certainly a chaotic event following multiple routes of escape, and the exact location is unclear. The final battle between the consolidated army and the robbers, though not stated, is assumed to have occurred within the Sidon River Valley, as that seems to have been the primary route from Zarahemla to the north. My apologies for stating so many times that things were unclear, but I feel it is important for readers to understand where Mormon was vague and where he provided details for several reasons. One, it makes his details pop out in greater relief. Two, it provides emphasis on the point that Mormon is making an abridgment of a much more detailed record. Three, Mormon focused on what mattered for us and therefore his details direct us to the elements of the story most beneficial to us. Finally, Mormon expected us to read and study, and in most cases, our studying clears up the vagaries he leaves. And when they don't, I refer you back to point one, 
it makes the details pop more significantly. Terrain slash vegetation. As previously noted, there is little mention of terrain in the record. The following are suppositions based on the context of the battles and engagements described in the text. The first battle between the robbers and the consolidated army happened on a relatively open plain, allowing vision by both armies of their opponents as inferred from 3 Nephi 4, 8-9. Judging from the visibility available to the participants and their apparent reactions to what they saw, terrain and vegetation were not significant impediments and did not impact the course of fighting. Eventually, the robbers broke and ran. The fighting during the rout of the robbers was in both open and restricted terrain and must have been impacted by both terrain and vegetation, but no details were given of this fighting. The later siege of the consolidated settlement by the robbers led to a response of the consolidated army to cut them off by thousands and tens of thousands, as explained in 3 Nephi 4.21. These engagements and battles must have been facilitated by the use of terrain to isolate various portions of the robber army. Mormon twice stated that the Consolidated Army executed these operations both day and night in 3 Nephi 4, 21-22. In the final battle, Gidgadoni used the hours of limited visibility to place his forces ahead of the robbers and thereby gain the advantage, as can be surmised, from 3 Nephi 4, 24. The use of darkness to facilitate battle preparation must be considered when discussing terrain. A commander who effectively used visibility and limited visibility was certain to have sought for terrain advantage whenever possible. Who was involved? Consolidated Nephite-Lamanite forces. It really is hard to pinpoint the size of the forces involved in the fighting. There were two major battles that featured the total or near-total commitment of the consolidated Nephite-Lamanite force. In the first such battle, the result was the greatest slaughter in Nephite history to that time, as we are told in 3 Nephi 4.11. This alone is sufficient to give us a framework around which to build the rest of the calculations. The greatest number of casualties mentioned prior to this event happened at the tremendous Battle of the Wilderness, where the suggested casualties were estimated at about 35,000, with armies ranging from 40 to 80,000. If these estimates were accurate, then the armies involved in the battles discussed here must have been at least as large, with casualties at least as great. The first point of note is that both Nephites and Lamanites opposed to the robber culture and society were united in this army as expressed in 3 Nephi 2.12 and 3.14. Both societies had suffered losses through dissensions to the robbers and through battles with them. Despite these losses, the first of the major battles discussed here represents a consolidated and near total commitment of the consolidated societies. Thus, an army of 50,000 to 100,000 is possibly a conservative estimate, and an army of twice that size would be conceivable. The organization of the consolidated army was very vague in the record, and only the hierarchical comment of having more than one chief captain and a supreme commander as the chiefest among all the chief captains, 
as explained in 3 Nephi 3, 17 to 18, gives the idea of a nested system of command structures. I ask you to think of armies in World War II, where there were armies and then army groups. An army group was a command structure responsible for directing the actions of armies. A chiefest of chief captains was probably responsible for directing the actions of chief captains, who in turn directed the actions of captains. In that sense, assuming we are still working with the Malachiahite war organizations, captains commanded about 2,000, chief captains something like 6,000 to 10,000, and a chief chief captain some collection of forces about 30,000 or so. This is all supposition, but it is based off the previous details, though those battles took place almost a hundred years earlier in the Book of Mormon timeline, and military command structures and organizations would probably have been altered over time to account for changes in society, as all armies do. Robber Forces The very nature of robbers, brigands, and pirates leads one to doubt the ability for large-scale cooperation and consolidation. They also give the impression for a problematic sense of command relationships. Those opposed to society and society's norms of behavior, rules, and laws are not likely to bow to whims of another leader once they break from the parent society. Those historical groups that have maintained cohesion the best are the ones with some alternative societal structure, often driven by a religious ideology of some form or another. The Gadianton robbers seemed to reject religious motivations and clung to hedonistic secularism. This makes cohesion and coordination even more difficult. It is certain that once the robbers were in the wilderness and faced with a common enemy who was attacking them in their strongholds, that the robbers would unite in a form of web-like defense. But the image of a disciplined army unified in commitment to a cause is unlikely to be accurate. Remember the likening of the robbers to contemporary non-state actors in the present world that I have made in previous episodes. I ask you to remember that the Gadianton robbers are a lot of things at the same time. Criminal gangs, drug smugglers, corrupt politicians, terrorists, and anarchists. In this story, they have united these various and sometimes competing interests into something like a common cause, making them something like a seething mass of an organization of actors. The image of the robbers that appeared out of the wilderness and took possession of the lands deserted by the Nephites should probably be an image of a group of robber bands who are united only in their hatred of the society and their willingness to prey upon it. The strategy of Laconius and the actions of the robbers themselves supported this notion. The likelihood of the robbers maintaining cohesion over time, the general lack of discipline, the disdain for mundane and necessary tasks of cultivation, irrigation, and farming, the fact that they were willing to attack a consolidated settlement with all of their enemies rather than to farm, and the fact that they broke and scattered once the battle was lost without the loss of a single identified leader, all give the impression of loose organization and control. Despite this, the robbers were formidable in small and medium-sized groups. They could and did destroy settlements and towns. They were ruthless and vicious. They used fear and terror as their primary weapon, 
as will be described later. And they expected that their opponents were themselves disunited and fractious, so much so that the robbers believed the Nephites would be cowed by the fear and terror generated by the robbers to the point where they would agree to anything. Based on the impact of their appearance on the battlefield, it is reasonable to assume that the force fielded by the robbers was at least as large as the consolidated force. An army that was perceived as significantly smaller would not have had the emotional impact described in 3 Nephi 4-7, regardless of their equipment. I would therefore estimate that the robber force was around the same conservative figure of 50,000 to 100,000, and possibly much larger. It is probable that the robbers maintained an active and large group of spies throughout the opposing societies. This is not to imply a state-like central intelligence agency, but that the various robber groups each had contacts and informants that served as a network of information used by the larger bands as they both intimidated and influenced smaller bands to join with them and work together. Regardless of the organization, the effect of the informants and spies was the same. I suppose that Gideonhai knew of the internal divisions and conflicts within the Nephites and Lamanites through these spies, making this knowledge instrumental in his strategic decisions. Key Leaders in the Battle, Nephite Forces Both the political and military leaders are included, as it is unclear from the record whether or not Laconius was a combat leader during the battles referenced in this period. There is only the mention of the chiefmost chief captain in Mormon's account among all of the possible military leaders. Laconius, governor of the land. Laconius was a just man and a man who issued prophecies to the people, as we are told in 3 Nephi 3.12 and 16. He was a strategic visionary, or he listened to those who were. It is unclear who developed the plan to consolidate, but regardless of the source, he did not hesitate to act. He was clearly a man of decision. It is unclear in what context or position he led men into battle, but he either had been or still was a battlefield commander, as we are told in 3 Nephi 3.5. He also had the wisdom and charisma to make what must have been an extreme and very challenging decision and to inspire the people to follow that decision. Not only did the people agree to abandon their homes and gather in a single area, they acted quickly in response to this guidance. He counseled and taught repentance, and the people obeyed this counsel. It is easier to appreciate the leadership demonstrated in this story by putting it in contrast to other historical events in which the fractious nature of the society prevented unified action. For example, Note that only a few years after the events that we discuss in this episode, that the entire society fractured. Laconius should stand out as an amazing leader in a perilous time. He was also a man who was secure enough in himself as a leader that he appointed a strong and righteous person to be the commander of the armies. Gid Gidoni, great commander of all the armies. He was a great prophet and also the chief judge. This poses an interesting question in terms of the organization of the Nephite government and how things might have evolved. At least at this time, the government was divided between chief judge and governor. It seems from this story that the governor was the chief executive, 
but the roles and responsibilities of the chief judge are not defined in this political arrangement. Gid Gadoni was a strategist and visionary, as was Lacanias. Clearly, he saw the strength of unity and the ultimate weakness of the robbers. He demonstrated this wisdom when he refused to lead the armies out to meet the robbers in their wilderness strongholds, but rather to wait for them to come to the consolidated settlement as explained in 3 Nephi 3, 20-21. Robbers Two leaders are mentioned, though no subordinate information is given or succession clarified. Both men possessed significant charisma and leadership ability sufficient to be successful in melding together the many bands and groups to form a relatively united army with which to fight the consolidated forces. This is important to always remember. These men were neither incompetent nor stupid. They were both capable and intelligent. Gideonhai, governor of the secret society of Gadianton. Gideonhai understood the weakness of the Nephites and perceived that the internal dissent could be the means to completely break open the state and destroy it. He failed to grasp the strength of personality of his opposing leaders and thereby was unable to achieve his goal. He was killed in the retreat following the first major battle between the two consolidated societies outside Zarahemla, as explained in 3 Nephi 4.14. Zemnarihah, leader of the Gadianton robbers. He was wise enough to suggest and execute a different strategy, but either through incompetence or lack of resources, he was unable to successfully execute the new strategy of siege. He was captured and executed by hanging following the last battle when they were trying to withdraw, as we are told in 3 Nephi 4.28. Strategic and Operational Context In episode 39 or part 7.2, I detailed much of the context of the Gadianton Robber War and the events leading up to this campaign. It is important to recall Gideonhai's word in his letter to Lacanias when he had said that he had seen Lacanias's qualities in battle. I quote from that letter as given to us in 3 Nephi chapter 3, verses 2 to 10. Lacanias, most noble and chief governor of the land, behold, I write this epistle unto you, and do give unto you exceedingly great praise because of your firmness, and also the firmness of your people, in maintaining that which ye suppose to be your right and liberty. Yea, Ye do stand well, as if ye were supported by the hand of a God in the defense of your liberty and your property and your country, or that which ye do call so. And it seemeth a pity unto me, most noble Lacanias, that ye should be so foolish and vain as to suppose that ye can stand against so many brave men who are at my command, who do now at this time stand in their arms and do await with great anxiety for the word go down upon the Nephites and destroy them. And I, knowing of their unconquerable spirit, having proved them in the field of battle and knowing of their everlasting hatreds towards you because of the many wrongs which you have done unto them, therefore, if they should come down against you, they would visit you with utter destruction. Therefore, I have written this epistle, sealing it with mine own hand, feeling for your welfare because of your firmness in that which ye believe to be right, and your noble spirit in the field of battle. Therefore I write unto you, desiring that ye would yield up unto this my people your cities, your lands, and your possessions, 
Rather than that, they should visit you with the sword, and that destruction should come upon you. Or in other words, yield yourselves up unto us, and unite with us, and become acquainted with our secret works, and become our brethren, that ye may be like unto us, not our slaves, but our brethren and partners of all our substance. And behold, I swear unto you, if you will do this with an oath, ye shall not be destroyed. But if you will not do this, I swear unto you with an oath, that on the morrow month I will command that my army shall come down against you, and they shall not stay their hand, and shall spare not, but shall slay you, and shall let fall the sword upon you, even until ye shall become extinct. And behold, I am Gideonhai, and I am the governor of this secret society of Gadianton, which society and the works thereof I know to be good, and they are of ancient date, and they have been handed down unto us. And I write this epistle unto you, Laconius, and I hope that you will deliver up your lands and your possessions without the shedding of blood, that this my people may recover their rights and government, who have dissented away from you because of your wickedness in retaining from them their rights of government. And except ye do this, I will avenge their wrongs. I am Gideonhai. Close quote. This letter is one of the most interesting aspects of the story of this battle. The letter came from the leader of a group that included the word secret in their title. Why would such a leader write a letter and openly threaten not just an attack, but specify, to some degree, the time and location of the attack? On its surface, this seems to be strategically stupid and foolhardy. Gideon High was no fool, as I stated earlier. He probably had spies throughout the Nephite lands. He must have known the details of the society and the various points of weakness that existed. The Nephites consolidated and lived in this consolidated settlement from 17 to 26 AD, returning to their homes after about eight years of living in perfect physical unity and winning several great victories. One would think they would have made great bonds across family groups. In 30 AD, only a few years after this seemingly wonderfully united society separated, the chief judge was murdered, and in the resulting turmoil, the entire state collapsed, and everyone reverted to tribal groups for governance, protection, and society. I believe that it was this societal weakness that Gideonhai must have seen and recognized when he made the decision to send the letter and to resort to intimidation rather than a surprise attack of the Nephites. He must have thought that if he could sufficiently intimidate, flatter, and win over the governor, that the state itself would fracture and his robber groups could just come in and pick up the pieces. Regardless of what he thought, Gideonhai did not fully count on the strength of personality and leadership of the governor. Gideonhai's letter used a combination of flattery, threats, revisionist history, and bribes to seek Laconius's agreement and cooperation. Mormon's inclusion of this letter in its entirety serves as a great lesson of how Satan seeks to subvert and turn each of us to his side. Mormon's account of Lacanius's reaction is also illustrative of Mormon's point in that Lacanius was shocked and recognized the inaccurate and unjust criticisms, and rather than concede, he did cause that his people should cry unto the Lord for strength, as given in 3 Nephi 3.12. The next action of Lacanius was almost as important 
in that he sent a proclamation to tell the people that they should gather together themselves, their families, and their substance to a single location. The order was not to simply gather what they had, but they were given the specific guidance to gather all of their substance, that they might subsist for the space of seven years. In gathering this food, they left the land desolate, as we are later told in 3 Nephi 4.3. In the process of preparing for the campaign to come, the Nephites conducted one of the most essential parts of their strategy, a scorched earth policy. The robbers could not subsist on the lands left vacant, and they were forced to either farm or fight. Foreman emphasized first that Lachanias urged his people to turn to the Lord, preparation, and then to unify with seven years' worth of provisions, also requiring preparation. This seven years is usually quickly passed over in discussions, and here it will also be briefly addressed, but it is worthy of a few comments. Where did the people get seven years' worth of provisions? Food, clothing, etc. Most farmers in any time, and especially in antiquity, were subsistence farmers. Usually, they struggled to provide for their families from year to year. How did these farmers have so much extra? Mormon did not tell us, except to say that they did. Not only did they have the food for the period specified, but when they won and then returned to their homes, they had not eaten up all of their provisions, as we are told in 3 Nephi 6, 2. It is probable that the people grew food during the time in the consolidated settlement, and certainly their animals reproduced, but still this represents a fantastic lesson in preparation. One does not simply have seven years of support that they grab on the way out of the house in moments of national emergency. It is probable that some program of community storage had existed for at least some time prior, possibly in the order of seven to ten years earlier, to these events that would allow for this type of surplus. The lesson for Mormon on this point is once again in the details, and he did not waste space in elaborating on it. We need to have such resources at our disposal. The link to the story of Joseph of Egypt and the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream is unmistakable, and I refer you to Genesis 41, 14-36 for further information on that story. The point of the unity was to better protect all of the people. Lachanias appointed chief captains, and the chiefest chief captain was Gidgadoni. These two men, Lachanias and Gidgadoni, had the same vision of what was necessary as they both emphasized repentance and unity over and before any other task. They were also men of supreme tactical and operational patience. We all marvel at the strength of their settlement and the success of the campaign, but think for a moment about the time frame. These events happened over a period of years, not months. There were years between major fighting. That meant that the consolidated community was sitting preparing, farming, living in the consolidated settlement for long periods of time when there was no fighting. This was true even after the last major battle that resulted in Zemnarihah's execution. What complaints must these two men have heard? Can we go home now? Their patience was as necessary for success in fighting the robbers as was the consolidation. By having well-stocked provisions, the consolidated forces were able to force the robbers to fight as Gidgadoni wanted to fight. 
He did not have to go out and find them. He forced the robbers to come to him. This was most clearly demonstrated at the beginning of the consolidation. When the people were all initially gathered together, they asked Gidgadoni to lead them up to the mountains to destroy the robbers in their own lands, as explained in 3 Nephi 3.20. Gidgadoni's response is important, as it clearly explains the strategy and the reasoning behind it. I quote from 3 Nephi chapter 3, verse 21, But Gidgadoni saith unto them, The Lord forbid. For if we should go up against them, the Lord would deliver us into their hands. Therefore, we will prepare ourselves in the center of our lands, and we will gather all our armies together, and we will not go against them, but we will wait till they shall come against us. Therefore, as the Lord liveth, if we do this, he will deliver them into our hands. Close quote. Technical Context There are several items of a technical nature from this battle. The first was already discussed. This is the question of seven years of surplus. In this section, I want to address five more items that all relate to defending against a siege and including preparations, fortifications and weapons, clothing and armor, sallying out, and night operations. Each item will be discussed in turn. 1. Defense against a siege through preparations. The purpose of a siege is to deny those under siege the benefits of outside support and resources. Those inside the siege line typically hope to hold out until either the besieging army loses cohesion and the siege is broken through lack of discipline, or some relieving force comes to assist by attacking the besieging force from the outside while those inside the fortress attack outward. In the case of the consolidated settlement, all of the provisions were inside with those besieged. Therefore, there was no possibility for relief, as there was no force outside the consolidated settlement that could or would mount such an attack, just as there were no resources outside to be brought to them. In this case, the besiegers were actually besieged by the fact that all of the resources were inside the fortifications. The scorched earth policy had removed all of the resources from the land outside. I quote from 3 Nephi chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. But behold, this was an advantage to the Nephites, for it was impossible for the robbers to lay siege sufficiently long to have any effect upon the Nephites because of their much provision which they had laid up in store. And because of the scantiness of provisions among the robbers, for behold, they had nothing save it were meat for their subsistence, which meat they did obtain in the wilderness. And it came to pass that the wild game became scarce in the wilderness, insomuch that the robbers were about to perish with hunger. Close quote. The thorough nature of pre-siege preparation meant that those inside actually were in a much greater position of strength. Mormon stated as much with his comments in 3 Nephi chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Quote, and it came to pass that in the latter end of the eighteenth year, those armies of robbers had prepared for battle and began to come down and to sally forth from the hills and out of the mountains and the wilderness and their strongholds and their secret places and began to take possession of the lands, both which were in the land south and which were in the land north, and began to take possession of all the lands which had been deserted by the Nephites and the cities which had been left desolate. 
But behold, there were no wild beasts nor game in those lands which had been deserted by the Nephites, and there was no game for the robbers save it were in the wilderness. And the robbers could not exist save it were in the wilderness for the want of food, for the Nephites had left their lands desolate and had gathered their flocks and their herds and all their substance, and they were in one body. Therefore, there was no chance for the robbers to plunder and to obtain food, save it were to come up in open battle against the Nephites, and the Nephites being in one body and having so great a number and having reserved for themselves provisions and horses and cattle and flocks of every kind, that they might subsist for the space of seven years, in the which time they did hope to destroy the robbers from off the face of the land, and thus the eighteenth year did pass away. Close quote. 2. Fortifications and Weapons We are only told that the combined force did fortify themselves against their enemies. The nature and quality of the fortifications are unclear and unstated. It is probable that the detailed descriptions of log casement fortifications that I described in episode 21 or part 5.2 of this series were probably followed for the most sensitive and threatened areas. It is also probable that this same level of quality may not have been maintained for the entirety of this large consolidated settlement. Though we have no specific details, we do know that the entire Nephite Lamanite society was available for about a year before the first battle, and then for at least a year and a half following that to build and improve fortifications. There is a lot of work that can be accomplished by that many people, several hundreds of thousands, for that long a period. Mormon did give some information on weapons in that Gidgadoni ordered the people to make weapons of war of every kind in 3 Nephi 3.26. This was Mormon's shorthand for telling the reader to refer back to the other lists of weapons that he had provided previously in the record. 3. Clothing and Armor This is an area of detail that is important and yet not entirely clear in terms of meaning. The first mention in the record of armor is when Gidgadoni directed the people to be strong with armor and with shields and with bucklers after the manner of his instruction as given in 3 Nephi 3.26. Once again, the details regarding the various types of armor have been discussed earlier in this podcast series, and several details provided throughout the Book of Mormon. The robbers presented a different story in terms of the details. Mormon states in 3 Nephi 4 verse 7 that they, quote, were girded about after the manner of robbers, and they had a lambskin about their loins, and they were dyed in blood, and their heads were shorn, and they had headplates upon them, and great and terrible was the appearance of the armies of Gideonhi because of their armor and because of their being dyed in blood. Close quote. It is probable, though not clearly stated, that the robbers and the consolidated force were equivalent in terms of personal armor and shielding. Mormon emphasized that the robbers had shorn heads, even though they wore helmets or headplates. As I have mentioned in earlier episodes, naked heads is a metaphorical point of nakedness before God, even though the robbers or Lamanites in the previous example did wear earthly armor. The emphasis on blood in this instance is a critical detail, as Mormon said it twice. The clothing of the robbers served a variety of purposes. They marked the robbers and therefore limited fratricide during a confused melee. They also served as a form of psychological warfare. 
Imagine seeing a warrior wearing armor and a sheepskin dyed in blood walking toward you. It would have appeared like a ghastly apparition of blood and death and would clearly have been intimidating. Finally, the garments and the use of blood may have had a symbolic meaning amongst the robbers, as the lambskins served not as protection, but were probably symbolic of the secret society and oaths they had made. 4. Sallying Out Mormon stated that the robbers began to come down and to sally forth from the hills in 3 Nephi 4.1, and he also said that the combined force was continually marching out by day and by night and falling upon their armies and cutting them off by thousands and by tens of thousands in 3 Nephi 4.21. The second reference is more like how most military historians would think of sallying out during a siege. In that case, sallying means to come out from a fortification and attack those who are besieging it. The first reference may simply mean coming out of the hills. The tactic of sallying out of castles and fortifications was critical to the ancient besieged force. It was necessary to have a way devised to escape the siege, get around the force laying siege, and then to attack it. The size of the fortifications, in this case, meant that even a large army would be very spread out to effectively lay siege to the consolidated settlement. The sallies of the consolidated force could not have been small, as they had to have been sufficiently strong to fight and defeat thousands and tens of thousands. The very nature of the robber siege allowed Gidgadoni to see and identify the best times and places for his attacks, and then to sally out when success was most likely. 5. Night Operations The challenges of night operations have been expressed in numerous former episodes. It is extremely important to understand that the simple use of this phrase by day and by night as given in 3 Nephi chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, contains a lot of complexity. This implies coordination, confusion, challenging command and control, and confidence in the ability of the consolidated force to understand the terrain and to dominate the battlefield. Night operations are still difficult in our era of thermal imaging and night vision devices. In the ancient world, they were generally eschewed by most commanders for the difficulties I just listed. Tactical Events The robbers came out of the wilderness at the end of 18 AD, or about the 109th year of the reign of the judges and they occupied the land that the Nephites vacated. It took the robbers six months or so to coordinate themselves such that they came to the collective decision and then organized sufficient to attack the armies in the consolidated settlement. Laconius and Gidgadoni had removed the two primary fuels of a secret combination, violence and plunder. Without them, the organization was certain to devolve into intra-organizational violence and plunder. Secret combinations, both in the past and today, cannot survive if starved of these two fuels, for there was and is no way that they could subsist save it were to plunder and rob and murder, as Mormons said about these past robbers in 3 Nephi 4, 5. 19 AD, or the 110th year of the reign of the judges, attack of the consolidated settlement and pursuit. It was in the sixth month that the robbers came up to battle. Based on the fact that the consolidated force was already arrayed for battle, as we learn in 3 Nephi 4, 8-9, to 9, 
we can safely surmise that either Gidgadoni had spies informing him of the locations, intent, and movements of the robbers, or some letter had been sent to invite the consolidated force to battle. The fact that the consolidated army fell to the ground in prayer without apparently being commanded or directed to do so speaks volumes for the success of Laconius and Gidgadoni in their preaching as well as their efforts to get the people to repent and turn to God in this period of trial. Despite their prayers, the consolidated Nephites and Lamanites were ready to receive the robbers when they attacked, and they received them in the strength of the Lord and not with the strength of men. The robbers opened the battle by rushing on the consolidated force. This must have been a fearsome and shattering clash between the two armies, as there may have been 200,000 warriors, or maybe as many as half a million, fighting, many of which were clothed in blood-dyed sheepskin and armor. A battle of this magnitude must have lasted several hours before a decision point was reached. It is unclear about the length of time for the battle, but it seems from the record that the robbers broke and began to flee during daylight hours, and that the pursuit was conducted before nightfall, as Mormon did not indicate that this battle was one fought day and night, as he did with others that we have discussed from this campaign. The general lack of disciplined cohesion prevalent among secret combinations, as mentioned previously, may have been the reason the army broke relatively early in the day. It is also useful to recall that most ancient battles occurred in the span of only a few hours. It was the rare few that lasted all day. Gidgadoni ordered his army to pursue the robbers all the way to the wilderness and to kill all who they were able to catch during this pursuit, as we are told in 3 Nephi 4.14. Gideonhai, the robber leader, was one of the robbers killed during the pursuit. The nature of his fall as a result of weariness from much fighting speaks to the ferocity of the fighting and the physical challenge facing the robbers. The slaughter was significant since Mormon identified it in 3 Nephi 4.11 as the greatest slaughter since Lehi 1 left Jerusalem. 21 AD, or the 112th year of the reign of the judges, siege of the consolidated settlement and consolidated force sallies. The robbers did not return in the rest of 19 AD or at all in 20 AD. Imagine the discipline and control of the leaders in the consolidated settlement, as after such a long time, many people probably wanted to return to their homes. In this period, it is probable that Gidgadoni had an active spy network in place. The robbers did come back in 21 AD with a new leader and a new strategy. Zemnarihal was the new leader, and he devised the plan of laying siege to the settlement, as explained in 3 Nephi chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. It is unclear why the robbers waited so long to begin their next attempt. It is possible that it took that long for a single leader to gain control of the fragmented society, or that the disparate robber bands had to be moved to near desperation before acting. Regardless, they laid siege, and they were ineffective. Mormon makes it clear in 3 Nephi 4, 18-20, that the consolidated settlement preparations, primarily of provisions, were instrumental in foiling the siege. The size of the settlement also may have played a role. Various elements of the robbers' siege must have been geographically isolated, as the fortifications around Zarahemla alone 
must have stretched for miles, and this allowed Gidgadoni to cut the geographically separated robber bands off by thousands and by tens of thousands. Only an insufficient siege, meaning one that did not invest the entire wall or the entire fortifications, would have allowed a consolidated force army of tens of thousands to exit the city and then to attack a similar-sized force of robbers. A historical example of such a large and complicated siege is the Siege of Alesia, led by Julius Caesar in 52 BC. Caesar laid siege to a city of something like 80,000 with a supporting relieving force of 250,000 or so, according to Caesar, who himself had an army of about 50,000. Caesar was so adept that he was able to defeat both the relieving and sallying forces and take the city, because, according to Julius Caesar, he was a great commander. Unlike Julius Caesar and his Roman legions, the robbers failed to fight off the sallying forces coming from Zarahemla, In addition to the preparation of the consolidated force, the incompetence or lack of force size of the robbers worked to allow Gidgadoni the ability to drive his opponent to despair, which is exactly what he did. 21 AD, or the 112th year of the reign of the judges, consolidated forces counterattack. Zemnariha realized that he could not succeed in starving the consolidated settlement out, neither could the force provide for itself in the near vicinity of the settlement. Therefore, his response was to escape to the land northward. It seems from the record that Zemnariha did one of two things. Either he gathered his forces and they conferred and then decided to withdraw, or he sent a withdrawal order to all of the units in their various siege positions, as I imagine, based off of the text in 3 Nephi 4, 22-23. Based on the later events, there must have been some consolidation, at least of the forces going north. This supposed consolidation would have been some time prior to their march north. If this supposition is correct, then the former option, meaning some form of gathering and conference, seems the most likely, though any conference could not have taken much time. Zemnariha knew that once the consolidated force realized the robbers were gone from their siege positions, they would come out after them. It seems like the robbers were in two groups, one on the north and another on the south of the consolidated settlement, as I imagine, based off of 3 Nephi 4, 25-26. It is unclear whether this represented a dimension in execution amongst the robbers or whether Zemnariha planned for the two groups to move on separate paths to ease the burden of gathering his entire force from very geographically separated areas. The very nature of robber culture leads to a less united and well-planned interpretation. However, one cannot be certain given the information in the record. Regardless of why the robbers executed as they did, Gidgadoni learned of the plans, and he immediately acted with plans of his own. He must have had a plan ready, such that he was able to set it in action within a single night. He sent one force to the north at night to get ahead of the robbers on their expected route of march. This force was able to attack both from the front and the rear of the robbers on the march. In the south, Gidgadoni was also able to position a force to cut them off in their places of retreat. The night operations are important 
It is possible that Gidgidoni used his months of waiting to familiarize at least some of his military elements with night movements and attacks as he seemed to execute them at a level significantly more than any other Book of Mormon commander. Many robbers surrendered and lived. Later, these robbers were allowed to return to society after being taught the gospel in prison and entering a covenant to keep the peace of the land, as we are told in 3 Nephi 5, 4-5, through 5, and chapter 6, verse 2. This is yet another great conception of forgiveness among those who were believers in Christ. Those who would not surrender were killed. Zemnarihah was taken and hanged. It is unclear whether or not there was a trial before the execution, or if it was a summary trial on the battlefield. Those who refused to enter a covenant of peace after being taught were punished according to the law, as explained in 3 Nephi chapter 5, verse 5. Battlefield Leadership Gidgidoni and Lachanias both served as powerful leadership examples throughout this campaign. The grasp of both men of the strategy necessary for victory was truly profound. They knew they had to draw the enemy to them and that they needed to consolidate their own strength to defeat the enemy once they came close. This serves as a great example of shared vision between the political and military leader in a conflict. Patience was essential for the accomplishment of the strategy. Without the willingness to hold the defense, regardless of the time required to wait out the robbers, there would have been no victory. Imagine the counterfactual scenario where the Nephites and Lamanites returned to their homes a year after defeating Gideonai. Would the robbers have been defeated? Or would the situation have returned back to its status quo antebellum, or that which pre-existed the war? The leader's ability to maintain unity and cohesion over time was absolutely essential to the success of the plan. Despite strength of position, Gidgadoni took his people to battle. He could have stayed safe within his fortifications, but he took the battle to his opponents, intensifying the suffering of the robbers and making their ability to win less and less apparent. By taking the battle to the robbers, Gidgadoni drove them to despair of success. Significance. The preaching to the prisoners, the trial process, the repentance and improvements of individuals, families, and the society at large followed the miraculous success. This took time. From 21 to 26 AD, or the 112th to the 117th years of the reign of the judges, all of the wonderful work occurred. Mormon explains this in 3 Nephi 5, verses 1 to 3. Quote, and now behold, there was not a living soul among all the people of the Nephites who did doubt in the least the words of the holy prophets who had spoken, for they knew that it must needs be that they must be fulfilled, and they knew that it must be expedient that Christ had come because of the many signs which had been given according to the words of the prophets, and because of the things which had come to pass Already they knew that it must needs be that all things should come to pass according to that which had been spoken. Therefore they did forsake all their sins and their abominations and their whoredoms and did serve God with all diligence day and night. Close quote. What is fascinating is that the people did not return to their homes immediately. There must have been a great deal of work and a wonderful feeling of unity in order to keep the people together, even after the threat was certainly extinguished. 
The people returned to their homes in 26 AD, or the 117th year of the reign of the judges, with their surplus provisions. The record states that there was a wonderful peace and cooperation throughout the land for the space of several years. The sad epilogue to this story is that in 30 AD, the chief judge was slain by those who had received the secret oaths and covenants and reinstituted the recently destroyed secret combinations, as we are told in 3 Nephi 6, verses 27 to 30, and chapter 7, verse 1. The death of this judge led to the total disillusion of the Nephite state to tribal organizations. Lessons Learned Military History Identification The letter from Gideonhi gave the warning that allowed the preparations to really begin. From that time on, it seemed that Gidgadoni knew what was happening with his opponent, and he was always ready with a solution to the problem. By implication, it seems that he had a good spy network that allowed him to either react or to preempt the decisions and actions of his opponent. Isolation. This campaign provides a great example of reverse isolation. By consolidating everyone in a single settlement and bringing in all valuables and food to the community, the robbers were completely isolated from the things they needed to survive physically, food, and to survive socially, violence and plunder. Suppression. The sallies against the besieging force denied the robbers the ability to maneuver against the community. Maneuver. The consolidated settlement with all its resources was the position of advantage, and the consolidated force maintained control of it throughout the campaign. Destruction. The lack of food, plunder, and success ate at the will of the robbers. The added shock of the near-constant attrition due to the attacks from the sallying forces completely broke the will of the robbers and caused them to flee. Eventually, they were surrounded, and those who did not repent and surrender were slain. Lessons Learned Spiritual I want to point out that these are my lessons, and by no means are they complete. These are a few of the things that I think are most important to understand from this battle. This is an important campaign in the Book of Mormon, and it receives multiple chapters of coverage in the record. There are six spiritual lessons that deserve treatment. 1. Unity. Unite and prepare together. Though this is one of Mormon's three major themes of his military metaphor, it is not taught better than it is in this series of events. This was complete and perfect unity. There is no disunity in this entire story, from the receipt of the letter through the defeat and conversion of the robbers. The fact that the people were consolidated in a single community brought them strength and allowed them to develop and strengthen faith even in the face of a frightening opponent. Even the final battle between the forces of Gidgadoni and the robbers involved encircling the robbers. Again, a metaphor of complete unity. 2. Good is stronger than evil at every level and in every comparison. The key to this being true is referring back to the previous point. Good must be united. So, following that logic, united good is stronger than evil, even when evil is united. This was and is my biggest frustration with the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies and many other movies that show evil 
individually or collectively, being stronger than good. Good and evil are not equally balanced, nor is evil stronger than good. There is no real comparison. Good is always more powerful. The problem is that evil often tries to separate good from each other, such that evil can gang up on good all alone. This story in the Book of Mormon refutes that common and misplaced understanding of relative strengths. Good is always powerful, but when unified, good is tremendously powerful and insurmountable. 3. Repent and pray. The fact that the first command of both the political and military leaders was for the people to repent and pray expresses a profound truth of facing any opponent conceptual or literal, we first need to clean up ourselves and our relationship with God. 4. Strengthen everyone individually and collectively by arming them with the knowledge of God. When we gather, we need to arm and protect everyone. Each needs to recognize that this is the purpose of the uniting efforts and then willingly take on the weapons and armor provided. Too often, people come and go from meetings and events without realizing that they should have added or strengthened some piece of armor or added another weapon to their personal arsenal as part of their efforts. 5. Make the opponent come into the open to fight you. We must not go into Satan's lairs and his wilderness areas. Make him come into the open and fight us before the fortifications of our homes, churches, and temples. In the open, he may frighten us, but he cannot win if we stand fortified, armored, and armed with God as our shield mate. Also, when Satan is interspersed within the society, his tactics blend with other, more acceptable practices, such that it is easy to be fooled into thinking that something is okay, which is not. Out in the open, the garish reality of his wickedness and vulgarity is obvious and therefore easy to recognize and avoid. 6. Go forth with confidence in God. No fear. It is not enough to stand behind the bulwarks of our personal and familial fortifications and concede the battlefield and the surrounding communities to our opponent. We must go out and take the battle to him when he presents himself. When he lays siege, we must attack him as we identify vulnerabilities. Satan will not starve to death, but we can force him to despair if we inflict on him loss after loss. Mormon's metaphor. How do these battles support it? Preparation. This is one of the great examples of Mormon's three points in all of the military history that he provides in the Book of Mormon. Many of the elements of preparation have been emphasized throughout this episode. Let me recap. The consolidated settlement gathered food, had a seemingly robust spy network, repented, fortified, armed, and armored, and maybe most importantly, had an overall strategy that could lead to victory. It is important to note that the preparation dealt with nourishment, protection, and training. Covenants. Repentance in any gospel culture means a return to obedience to covenants. So much of this story revolves around the strength enjoyed by those who repented. Unity. This is the paragon of unity among the Book of Mormon people. There is physical, 
spiritual, political, and military unity throughout this campaign. Conclusion. Mormon provided real and profound answers to our problems of today. As previously stated, the secret combinations of the Book of Mormon era completely surround us in our world today. Everything from drug and criminal groups to non-state organizations seeking to overthrow states to nation-states that have become corrupted modern-day robber kingdoms. To face and defeat these opponents, we must be fluent in the teachings provided in the Book of Mormon. This episode and all of the episodes of Part 7 of this podcast are intended to illuminate the details and value to be found in studying the Book of Mormon and understanding the discussions of the Gadianton robbers and secret combinations so that we are better prepared to function in our current environment. In these six podcast episodes of Part 7 are some answers from the Book of Mormon about how we must deal with these parasitic and significantly destructive organizations. These are the real threats to ourselves, our families, and our societies, just as Mormon told us they were the most serious threats to the Nephites. The answers to this challenge of secret combinations and robbers are in the Book of Mormon. We must metaphorically, and maybe literally, fight these secret organizations, as did the successful Nephite and Lamanite groups. We need to destroy them when we see them out in the world and not wait, as was the case with the servant of the chief judge and governor that we mentioned in episode 39. We need to teach eternal truths and fight them simultaneously, as we have discussed in episodes 39, 40, 41, 42, and 43. We need to have perfect unity as so brilliantly and poetically expressed in the story discussed in this episode. If we do these things, we can defeat any group of robbers that we face. In the next episode, we will go directly to the teachings of Jesus Christ during his visit to the people of the Book of Mormon. What did Jesus teach about conflict? That is the primary question that we will address. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>